0: Section 16 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cathy Barrett. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 29, Francis I and the Renaissance, Part 1. Francis I, in his life as a king and a soldier, had two rare pieces of good fortune. Two great victories, Malagnano and Ceresole stand out at the beginning and the end of his reign. And in his direst defeat at Pavia, he was personally a hero. In all else, as regards his government, his policy was neither an able nor a successful one for two and thirty years he was engaged in plans attempts wars and negotiations he failed in all his designs he undertook innumerable campaigns or expeditions that came to nothing he concluded forty treaties of war peace or truce incessantly changing aim and cause and allies and for all this incoherent activity he could not manage to conquer either the empire or italy he brought neither aggrandizement nor peace to france Outside of the political arena, in quite a different field of ideas and facts, that is, in the intellectual field, Francis I did better and succeeded better. In this region he exhibited an instinct and a taste for the grand and the beautiful. He had a sincere love for literature, science, and art. He honored and protected, and effectually, too, their works and their representatives. And therein it is that more than one sovereign and more than one age have found their purest glory to consist." Virgil, Horace, and Livy contributed quite as much as the foundation of the empire to shed lustre on the reign of Augustus. Bossuet, Pascal, and Fenelon, Corneille, Racine, Boileau, Moliere, and La Fontaine count for quite as much as his great warriors and his able administrators in regard to the splendour of the age of Louis the Fourteenth. People are quite right to set this estimate upon the heroes of the human mind and upon their works their portion in the history of mankind is certainly not the most difficult but it is that which provides both those who give and those who take with the purest delights and which is the least dear in respect of what it costs the nation the reign of francis i occupies the first half of the century the sixteenth which has been called the age of renaissance taken absolutely and as implying a renaissance following upon a decay of science literature and art the expression is exaggerated and goes beyond the truth it is not true that the five centuries which rolled by between the establishment of the capetians and the accession of francis i from nine eighty seven to fifteen fifteen were a period of intellectual barrenness and decay the middle ages amidst the anarchy violence and calamities of their social condition had in philosophy literature and art works of their own and a glory of their own which lacked not originality or brilliancy or influence over subsequent ages there is no idea of telling their story here we only desire to point out with some sort of precision their special character and their intellectual worth At such a period what one would scarcely expect to find is intellectual ambition on a very extensive scale and great variety in the branches of knowledge and in the scope of ideas. And yet it is in the thirteenth century that we meet for the first time in Europe and in France with the conception and the execution of a vast repertory of different scientific and literary works produced by the brain of man, in fact with a veritable encyclopedia. It was a monk, a preaching friar, a simple Dominican reader, lector qualiscumque, whose life was passed, as he himself says, by the side and under the eye of the superior general of his order, who undertook and accomplished this great labor. Vincent of Beauvais, born at Beauvais between 1184 and 1194, who died at his native place in 1264, an insatiable glutton for books librorum eluo say his contemporaries collected and edited what he called bibliotheca mundi speculum majus or library of the world an enlarged mirror an immense compilation the first edition of which published at strasbourg in 1473 comprises 10 volumes folio and would comprise 50 or 60 volumes octavo the work contains three, and according to some manuscripts, four parts entitled Speculum Natural, or Mirror of Natural Science, Speculum Historial, or Mirror of Historical Science, Speculum Doctrinal, or Mirror of Metaphysical Science, and Speculum Moral, or Mirror of Moral Science. M. Donnou, in the notice he has given to it, disputes, not without reason, the authenticity of this last part each of these specula contains a summary extracted from the various writings which have reference to the subject of it and the authors of which vincent of beauvais takes care to name m Donou, at the end of his learned notice has described the nature the merit and the interest of the work in the following terms the writings and documents which we have to thank vincent of beauvais for having preserved to us are such as pertain to veritable studies to doctrines to traditions and even to errors which obtained a certain amount of credit or exercised a certain amount of influence in the course of ages Whenever it is desirable to know what were in France, about 1250, the tendency in the subjects of the most elevated studies, what sciences were cultivated, what books, whether ancient or, for the time modern, were or might have been read, what questions were in agitation, what doctrines were prevalent in schools, monasteries, churches, and the world, it will be to Vincent of Beauvais, above all, that recourse must be had." there is nothing to be added to this judicious estimate there is no intention of entering here into any sort of detail about the work of vincent of beauvais only it is desirable to bring some light to bear upon the intellectual aspirations and activity of the middle ages in france previously to the new impulse which was to be communicated to them by the glorious renaissance of greek and roman antiquity a scientific historical and philosophical encyclopedia of the thirteenth century surely deserves to find a place in the preface to the sixteenth after the encyclopedists of the middle ages come naturally their philosophers they were numerous and some of them have remained illustrious several of them at the date of their lives and labors have already been met with and remarked upon in this history such as gerbert of Aurillac, who became pope sylvester the second saint anselme abelard saint bernard robert of sorbonne founder of the sorbonne and saint thomas aquinas to these names known to every enlightened man might be added many others less familiar to the public but belonging to men who held a high place in the philosophical contests of their times such as john scott erigina Berenger, rosselin william of champeau gilbert of la porre etc the questions which always have taken and always will take a passionate hold of men's minds in respect of god the universe and man in respect of our origin our nature and our destiny were raised and discussed from the eleventh to the fifteenth century if not with so much brilliancy at any rate with as much boldness and earnest thought as at any other period the middle ages had in france their spiritualists their materialists their pantheists their rationalists their mystics and their sceptics not very clear or refined in their notions but such as lacked neither profundity in their general view of the questions nor ingenious subtlety in their argumentative process we do not care to give in this place any exposition or estimate of their doctrines we shall simply point out what there was original and characteristic in their fashion of philosophizing and wherein their mental condition differed essentially from that which was engendered and propagated in the sixteenth century by the resuscitation of greek and roman antiquity it is the constant idea of the philosophers and theologians of that period to affirm and to demonstrate the agreement between christian faith and reason they consider themselves placed between two fixed points faith in the christian truths inculcated from the very first or formerly revealed by god to man and reason which is the faculty given to man to enable him to recognize the truth faith wrote hildebert archbishop of tours in the eleventh century is not contrary to reason but it is above reason if like the philosophers one willeth not to believe anything but what reason comprehends faith in this case hath no merit the merit is in believing that which without being contrary to reason is above it faith is certainty in respect of things which fall not under the perceptions of the body it is below knowledge for to believe is less than to know and it is above opinion for to believe is more than to imagine I do not seek to understand in order to believe, says Saint Anselm, I believe in order to understand. Authority requires faith in order to prepare man for reason. But authority, says Saint Columbin in the sixth century, proceeds from right reason, not at all reason from authority. Every authority whereof the decrees are not approved of by right reason appears mighty weak. Minds so liberal in the face of authority, and at the same time attached to revealed and traditional faith, could not but be sometimes painfully perplexed. My wounded spirit, said Adam, of the Prémontre order, or le Prémontre, in the twelfth century, calls to her aid that which is the source of all grace and all life. But where is it? What is it? In her trouble the spirit hath love abiding. But she knows no longer what it is she loves, what she ought to love she addresseth herself to the stones and to the rocks and saith to them what are ye and the stones and the rocks make answer we are creatures of the same even as thou art to the like question the sun the moon and the stars make the like answer the spirit doth interrogate the sand of the sea the dust of the earth the drops of rain the days of the years the hours of the days the moments of the hours the turf of the fields the branches of the trees the leaves of the branches the scales of fish the wings of birds the utterances of men the voices of animals the movements of bodies the thoughts of minds and these things declare all with one consent unto the spirit we are not that which thou demandest Search up above us, and thou wilt find our Creator. In the tenth century, Remigius the theologian had gone still farther. I have resolved, said he, to make an investigation as to my God, for it doth not suffice me to believe in him. I wish further to see somewhat of him. I feel that there is somewhat beyond my spirit. If my spirit should abide within herself without rising above herself, she would see only herself it must be above herself that my spirit will reach god god creator, lawgiver, and preserver of the universe and of man, everywhere and always present and potent, in permanent connection, nay, communication, with man, at one time by natural and at another by supernatural means, at one time by the channel of authority and at another by that of free agency, this is the point of departure, this fixed idea of the philosopho-theologians of the Middle Ages. There are great gaps, great diversities, and great inconsistencies in their doctrines. They frequently made unfair use of the subtle dialectics called scholastics or la scholastique, and they frequently assigned too much to the master's authority or l'autorité du maître but christian faith more or less properly understood and explained and adhesion to the facts to the religious and moral precepts and to the primitive and essential testimonies of christianity are always to be found at the bottom of their systems and their disputes whether they be pantheists even or sceptics it is in an atmosphere of christianity that they live and that their thoughts are developed a breath from the grand old pagan life of greece and rome heaved forth again and spread in the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries throughout this christian atmosphere of the middle ages greek and roman antiquity with its ideas and its works had never been completely forgotten therein aristotle and plato seneca epictetus Boethius, and other ancients had taken their place amongst the studies and philosophical notions of that period but their influence had been limited to professional scholars and had remained without any social influence in spite of the stateliness of its ceremonies and the charms of its traditions paganism had never been in plain truth a religion faith and piety had held but a paltry place in it instead of a god the creator and acting sovereign of the world its gods were of human invention and human nature their adventures and the parts they played were pleasing to the imagination but gave no sort of satisfaction to the deep instincts and higher aspirations of the soul christianity is god hovering over watching over and descending to earth paganism is earth its children and the stories of their lives transported with their vices rather than their virtues to heaven olympus was peopled with nothing but personages belonging to popular tradition mythology or allegory and in the fifteenth century this mythology was in full course of decay all that it might have commanded of credence or influence had vanished there remained of it nothing but barren memories or a contemptuous incredulity speaking from the religious point of view the renaissance was but a resurrection of paganism dying out before the presence of the christian world which was troubled and perplexed but full of life and futurity The religious question, thus set on one side, the Renaissance was a great and happy thing, which restored to light and honor the works and glories of the Greek and Roman communities, those two communities which, in the history anterior to the sixteenth century, had reached the greatest prosperity and splendor under a civil regimen, in the midst of a more or less stormy but real and strong political freedom, and had attained, by the mere development of human thought and human energy, the highest degree of civilization yet known in Europe, and one would be inclined to say, in the world. The memorials and monuments of this civilization, which were suddenly removed at the fall of the Greek Empire, to Italy first, and then from Italy to France, and throughout the whole of Western Europe, impressed with just admiration people as well as princes, and inspired them with the desire of marching forward in their turn in this attractive and glorious career. This kind of progress, arrived at by the road of imitation, often costs dear in the interruption it causes to the natural course of the peculiar and original genius of nations, but this is the price at which the destinies of diverse communities get linked together and interpenetrate, and the general progress of humanity is accomplished. End of section sixteen